You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the Christians in Thessalonica. In your New Testament, you can use your table of contents if you're not sure where that's at or if you use your phone to use your Bible, we encourage you to use that YouVersion Bible app and if you go into the menu, you can find all the stuff that will be on the screen and some more things as well. It's a great way for you to interact and take notes and follow along and share things as well. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 through 20 as we work our way through the first and second letters of Paul to the Thessalonians in our study called Upside Down. So we're going to begin this morning uh, by reading this text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, that uh, there's a message you want to speak to us to us through it. And Lord, we pray that truly we would receive this word today, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. Help us to learn uh, through these words. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you orchestrated it, that we would have your word in this format, that we can open it up and study and hear from you. Lord, may we have uh, not just eyes to see and ears to hear, but may we have hearts that are receptive and that respond to your word and help us, Lord, that we would be doers of your word, not only hearers. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so how many of you guys have somebody in your life whom you would like to influence? I'm guessing that you don't have to raise your hands, which uh, you didn't, so it's okay. So anyway, uh, how many, I know that you all do, okay? You all have somebody in your life who you want to influence. Maybe there's something you really love, right? Something you've discovered and you love it and you want other people you know and care about to discover that thing because you know that they would benefit from it. And so what? You want to influence them. Of course you do. Or maybe there's somebody in your life you know who is not doing very well in some aspect or area of their life and you want to influence them because you love them, because you care about them. See, when it comes to influence, we could look at Paul the Apostle and we could say, without a doubt, one of the most influential people who has ever lived in all of history. He was the missionary who brought the gospel not only from uh, the Middle East into what's now modern-day Turkey, but he brought it into Europe. And we know that the rest is history. Historians, you know, sometimes they make lists, and oftentimes they'll list Paul the Apostle as one of the top five most influential people who has shaped history as we know it today. And of course, number one, I don't need to tell you this, you know it, it's Jesus himself. But here's the thing, it it also wouldn't be right for us to give Paul too much credit, right, and put all that on him. Because the truth is that he didn't influence the Roman Empire for Christ and the gospel on his own. 
See, the early Christians as a whole, they spread the gospel around the world and they exercise an incredible amount of influence. That's what we're really talking about right now is influence on people in their time and that trickled down to us throughout history. And they were so influential, in fact, in their day that it says in Acts chapter 17 that when they came to the town of Thessalonica, right? We're reading the letter to the Thessalonians. When they came to the town of Thessalonica, these Christian missionaries, the people there said this, and this is what's written. It says this. They said, those people who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. You know, our church, Whitefields, we have a vision statement. It's a statement of why we exist and what we exist for, and here's what it is. It says this. We exist to build and foster a passionate, engaged, and spiritually healthy Christian community. Why? To influence and bless Longmont and beyond. See, here's the thing. I believe that all of us, if we're honest, will say we want to influence people. And I want to tell you, I don't think that that's a bad thing if you want to influence them for a good reason. In fact, I would argue that if you love someone, then of course you want to influence them. You will naturally want to influence them. See, the opposite of love is not hate. You know what the opposite of love is? Indifference. It's apathy. It's when you don't care at all about a person. You don't care about what happens to them. You don't care about their, their state of being or their destiny. You know, if you're angry at someone, at least you care, right? At least you're emotionally involved. You care about their opinion. You care about their actions. You're having an emotional reaction to it. They're still taking up space in your head. But the ultimate expression of not loving someone is when you're completely indifferent, is when you're completely apathetic and you don't care. And therefore, to love someone is to care about them and to want what is good for them. And so inevitably, we are going to be people who in different areas of our lives want to influence people in one direction or another. And the question is this, as we look at the early church, we see that these are people who turned the world upside down in their generation. The question is, how did they do that? What made them so effective? I mean, think about this. They, they really had nothing, not much going for them, right? They had no power. They had no money. Many of them were refugees, right? They like had to flee their home countries because of persecution. Um, they preached a message that was highly unattractive. Now, really, I want you to understand how unattractive it was. Paul himself is talking about the gospel in 1 Corinthians, and he says, you know, if I'm honest, uh, the gospel is an offense to the Jews, and it's a laughingstock to the Greeks, right? Like, this message they preached was basically this. There was a Jewish carpenter who was actually God on earth. And he was put to death on a cross and he rose from the grave three days later. And the only way that anybody can be saved is by believing that those historical events can save a person. The Jews were offended by that. They were offended by the idea that anybody who's a human being would claim to be God. They found that blasphemous. And the Greeks didn't really have a problem with that. They had a lot of stories about, you know, gods coming down to earth. But for the Greeks, they found the whole idea ridiculous because they found it ridiculous to think that historical events could bring salvation. See, the Greek people thought that salvation was a state of mind. It was a matter of changing the way you think. It's all about your mindset. But no, the gospel came along and said, first of all, this man, Jesus, he was God come to us to save us. And these historical things that he did are what saves us. See, Christianity came around with a message that was highly unattractive. They told people, they told everybody, right, that you are sinners and you need to repent and put your faith in this man, Jesus, in order to be saved. And people, understandably, 
hated that message, right? Everywhere we went, we could see how much they hated it. Like mobs were formed everywhere they went and like chased people and tried to kill people and conspired and persecuted, right? And yet the gospel, in spite of all these things, the gospel went forth and Christianity spread and it changed the world. And it's still changing the world. The gospel, by the way, is still considered to be highly offensive, highly unpalatable. It's considered laughable by some. And yet even today, Christianity continues to grow and change lives. You know, Time Magazine sometimes puts out these special issues about once a year where they say, you know, these are the 25 or so most influential people in the world or in the United States. And whenever they do that, I find it interesting that when you begin to read the article, they always specify, they always say, there's a difference between power and influence. There's a difference between power and influence. And I'll point out, these aren't necessarily the most powerful people in America or in the world, but they are the most influential See, the difference between power and influence is that power changes people from the outside, but influence changes people from the inside. So power changes from the outside, influence changes from the inside. When you've got power, whether it's money or, or political power, or if you're a boss or if you're a parent, right, you can tell people to do things or else, right? Like, or else you're going to take something away from them that they want, or else you're going to do something to them that they don't want you to do to them, that they're not going to enjoy. And so in other words, you can change people's behavior, but the way you're doing it is through coercion, right? You're changing people through coercion. That's power. But with influence, what you're doing is you're changing people from the inside. You're, you're affecting the way that they think, the way that they, they feel. You, you seek to change their views. And therefore, when people change because you've influenced them, they change because they want to, not because they were forced to. And we should admit that, hey, it's really actually only when you change somebody from the inside out that they've actually changed, right? Because if you change through coercion, then when, when that coercive force is no longer around, that person's gonna go back to doing what they were originally going to do. But when you change someone's thoughts and they, it's actually they want to change, that's real change only changing people from the inside, their heart, their mind, their desires. That's the only real kind of change. And so as people who love other people and therefore as people who endeavor to influence people and the world for good, the question is this, what was it about these early Christians that made them able to do this so well? Now you might say, well, hey, look, it wasn't those guys who changed anybody. Nobody can change people. Only God can change people. Absolutely true but he did it through these people, didn't he? Only God can change people, but he wants to do it through you and me. And here in this passage, Paul lets us in on their secret, right? He tells us the recipe to the secret sauce that the early Christians had. And here's what he says about how the early Christians turned the world upside down. Three things we see in this passage. Number one, it was their understanding about the word of God. Their understanding about the word of God. Secondly, their willingness to give their hearts and thirdly, their ability to keep their heads. So let's, let's just get you back up to speed if you're just joining us here in this series. We're doing a series called Upside Down in which we're studying verse by verse through two books of the Bible, First and Second Thessalonians. I told you at the outset of this study, if you stick with us for this whole thing, you will have, by the time we're done, studied through two entire books of the Bible. These were actual letters that Paul the Apostle wrote to Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Paul had started this church himself on his second missionary journey. 
But after only a few weeks of being in Thessalonica, and things were going well, things were going great, but Paul ended up having to leave the city prematurely, chased out of town by an angry mob that wanted to kill him. And since that time that Paul left, he had not returned to Thessalonica. So he had left after just a couple weeks, and he hadn't returned. Now, Paul had sent someone to Thessalonica to get a report of how they were doing. We're going to talk about that next week. And this letter is really a response to that report that he got. But Paul himself had not returned to Thessalonica in person. He hadn't gone there himself. And some of the Thessalonians, you know, they were kind of bothered by that, right? They said, you know, why hasn't Paul come back to visit us? Doesn't he love us? Doesn't he care about us? I mean, he said so much, all this talk about loving and caring about us and caring about our hearts and, you know, he's going to keep in touch and all this. But did Paul lose interest in us? Did he just move on to bigger and better things and he just doesn't care about us anymore? Paul is going to answer that issue here in this section. But he begins by saying this in verses 13 and 14. He says, we thank God for you constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. How did the early Christians turn the world upside down in their generation? Well, a large part of it had to do with this. Number one, their understanding about the word of God. See, the early Christians knew that what they had to offer to people, what they could provide, what they could give people to help them was not a social gathering, nor was it a forum for religious rituals. No, those things all existed in other places. No, what they had to offer people uniquely was the word of God. And what people needed, they realized, in order to grow, in order to change, what people needed desperately was the word of God. See, for us as a church, you know, the reason why we put such a big emphasis on studying the Bible here on Sunday mornings and in classes throughout the week and in small groups, why? Because we believe that the Bible is the word of God. It doesn't just contain some of the words of God. It is the very word of God. I love this passage in Isaiah 66, verse two. Let me share this with you. Isaiah 66, verse two, it says this. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Just let those words settle in your mind. Who trembles at my word. God says, this is the person to whom I will look. Other translations say, this is the one whom I will bless the person who is humble, the person who is contrite, right? You don't think too much of yourself, nor do you think too little of God, and that makes you contrite. It makes you weep over your sins, and he says, and that person who trembles at my word. Friends, I just want to challenge you to set your hearts on being those kinds of people. Be those kinds of people who say, I want to be a humble person. I want to be a contrite person, and I want to be a person who trembles at the word of God. Because look at how God treats these kind of people. It says that he looks upon them, he blesses them. What does it mean to be a person who trembles at the word of God? It means that we approach God's word with a sense of reverence, with a sense of uh, awe, with a sense of expectancy. We're right, we're like waiting on the edge of our chairs with pen and paper in hand because we believe that this is God's word and it's alive. See, as Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, we believe that the word of God is living and active. It's able to cut to the core of who we are. It's able to dissect us and see what's really going on below the surface. And so when we open up our Bibles to read them, when we come to listen to the word of God presented to us, right, we come with an attitude that says, God, I want to hear what you have to say to me. God, speak to me, change me, work on me, fuel me, direct me, uh, send me out and fill me with what I need 
to go where you've called me to go. So again, we sit on the edge of our seats, right, with pen and paper in hand because we believe that this, uh, when we open God's word, he is going to speak to us something that we need to hear. And we're ready to respond, right? Like we come with our cleats on, with our running shoes on, with our boots tied tight, right? Because we wanna be ready to respond to what he says when he says it. We don't just wanna be hearers of the word, we wanna be doers of the word. The New King James translation puts this verse in this way, which I think is important. It adds a bit of nuance. It says this, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe, effectively works in you who believe. How does it effectively work? Well, you know, the Bible talks a lot about what the Bible does and how it works, right? So I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 19. He says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's what God's word does. It revives the soul. Secondly, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Look at what Paul wrote to Timothy later on about how the word of God effectively works in the life of a believer. He said this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. See, there's no other book, there's nothing else in the world that has that divine power and effect in our lives like the word of God. And notice what it says there in verse 13, one more time, it says this, the word of God which effectively works in who? In you who believe. In other words, in order for God's work to have its full effect in our lives, it needs to be met with and mixed with faith on our part as we hear it and as we receive it. I love this, that Paul praises the Thessalonians for this, is that the Thessalonians had a determination. They had a determination that they were determined to receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. And look at how they responded. Verse 14, it begins like this. For you, brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How did they imitate the believers in Judea? By their response to the word of God that they received. Now imagine this, I mean, think about it. If one day you're standing outside and the clouds just split, right? And God speaks in an audible voice and says, John or Mary or whatever your name is. And then he tells you something or he, he gives you instruction. How would you respond to that? Well, of course you would be in complete awe. You'd be blown away. You wouldn't be able to believe it, that God had spoken to you. And then of course you would probably most certainly do what he said because it had come to you in this way. God himself had spoken to you. Friends, God has spoken to us. That's what we need to keep in mind. And that's the posture that we have as we come to his word. We tremble before it. We receive his word, not as the word of men, but as it is in reality, the word of God. And we respond in a like manner with a sense of awe, with a sense of expectancy, with a sense of reverence and a determination to do what he has called us to do. So how did the early Christians turn their world upside down? How did they have such a massive impact and influence on people in their day and age? A major factor was the way that they responded and understood the word of God. They understood that the word of God is what people needed. It was the only thing they had to offer people which would be of any real help or substance and they themselves expectantly received it and responded to it. And I would say this, may we have that same attitude as well. May we be people who tremble at the word of God. 
The next thing we see in this section, another factor in how the early Christians were able to turn their world upside down is their willingness to give away their hearts, their willingness to give away their hearts. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see your face. He says, we were torn away from you. That phrase, torn away, it's, it's sometimes translated in some of your Bibles as bereft, right? Which means to lose a loved one, right? It's, when, it's a phrase that we use when somebody dies or when, a, a, let's say, a child is taken away, ripped away from their parents, either by death or by force. It means that Paul was grieved that he had to leave them. It was a similar feeling as when a loved one dies and is taken away from you. And he says there in verse 17, we had great desire to see your face. This is interesting. This word is translated great desire. It's one word in the Greek, and it's a very interesting word. And here's, here's what it is. It's the word epithemia. Epithemia. Whenever you see the word epi in Greek, it means like mega, like big time, right? It's like a, it's like a very emphatic thing. So it's saying great desire, right? Or we could translate like mega desire. But what's so interesting about this word is that, did you know this? Literally everywhere else it's used in the Bible, it's translated lust. Weird, right? Paul's like, I lusted after your, your personal presence. And did you know every time it's used in the Bible, except for right here, it's used in a negative sense, right? It's like, that's not something you should do. And here he used it in a positive way. He says, I lusted. I, I wanted to be with you so bad that it was almost sinful, but that's how bad I wanted. I wanted it so, so bad. And Paul is assuring them, look, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't just moved on from you. I'm not just over you guys and on to different things. In fact, I thought about you every single day and leaving you was like suffering the death of a loved one and I desired to return to you so badly it was almost wrong. And Paul goes on in verse 20 to say this, you are our glory and joy. If you look down at chapter three, verse eight, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I just wanna give you a little preview of this. We're gonna look at this again next Sunday, but Paul makes this astounding statement. He says this in chapter three, verse eight. He says, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What he's saying is this, when I thought that you might be backsliding, when I thought that you might be struggling spiritually, it killed me, I was dying. When I thought you might be struggling in your faith or giving up, I was dying. But now that I've gotten this report that you're doing well, now I live. It's like pouring water on a dying fish. I've been revived. And he says in verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm so proud of you guys, right? Like my greatest joy in life, my greatest accomplishment in life has been helping you come to know Jesus and find freedom and, and redemption and salvation and joy in him from embracing the gospel. And he says, you know what? When Jesus comes, I'm gonna be like a proud dad, right? Like showing you guys off to everybody. I'm gonna be there. Look at this. These are my kids. I'm so proud of these guys. Look how well they're doing. Paul lived with this expectation of Jesus' soon return. And by the way, that's one of the themes of this letter. We're gonna talk about it more when we get to chapter four, so stick with us. To give your heart to someone is to love them to the point where your joy is irretrievably bound up with them and their joy. Where your joy is irretrievably bound up with them and their joy. You know, there's a saying about mothers that says this, that once you become a mother, you, will, you can only ever be as happy as your most unhappy child. You know, that's it's what they say. And why is that? 
Because moms, you're so invested in your kids that if they're suffering, if they're unhappy, you can't ever feel completely happy because your heart, what? Your heart is bound up with them. It is tied to them. You've given them your heart. And that's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians here. He says, this is how Jesus taught us to love. This is the kind of love he modeled for us, not detached, cold, you know, just going through emotions. No, this is attached, bound up with, invested. Part of the reason why the early Christians were so effective in turning the world upside down is because they were willing to give their hearts away. They were willing to love in this way. And it's been rightly said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Paul knew a lot of stuff, but he didn't just spout off information. He gave people his heart. He gave people his life. See, the truth is this. You can speak the truth all day long, but you're probably not gonna influence a lot of people unless it's coupled with real heart. Right? If you don't love the people you're speaking to, it's very unlikely that they will ever change their minds about anything. They'll be able to know what you think, but they won't often be influenced by you. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul encourages us. He says, this is what we do in Christ. We speak the truth in love. See, it's been said that truth without love is brutality. Think about it. Truth without love is brutality. You can tell somebody something that's true and destroy them with it. But on the other hand, love without truth is just sentimentality, right? It's, it's like cotton candy, has no substance to it, it just kind of melts away. But love with truth, bringing the truth in love, that's the way of Jesus, and that's incredibly powerful. See, Jesus came with radical truth, and he also came with radical love. Jesus was not emotionally detached. He, he did things like he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He sees someone die, and even though he knows he's gonna raise him, he weeps over the man's death. Jesus was not emotionally detached. He said, you know, so many times I longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not come. From the beginning of the Bible, we see that God is emotionally invested in us. When Adam and Eve sinned, prior to that, it says that they had walked with God in the garden, but when they sinned, they hid themselves from God. And it tells us that God came looking for them in the garden in the cool of the day and he was calling out to them with the voice of a heartbroken father, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? See, it isn't, sometimes we read that, right? It's hard to read the tone into black and white words. Sometimes we read that and we read it as this, like, where are you? But I want you to understand, this isn't where are you and angry, this is where are you? Why are you hiding? You know how I know? Because he already knew where they were. He wanted them to reveal themselves, but you know how else I know? Because only a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 6, it says that God looked out over the world, right? The population of the world had increased greatly by that point. And God looked out over the world and he saw the sin and he saw the brokenness and he saw the evil in the world. And it says this, it says that it grieved him to the heart. It grieved him to the heart. The word that's used there for grief, it's only used in one other place in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, where it's describing the heartbrokenness of a young woman whose husband has abandoned her. That's the kind of grief that God says that he felt when he looked over the world and he saw the sin and evil and wickedness. It says that his heart was broken. He was grieved to the heart. See, that's the kind of grief that comes from giving your heart away, from being emotionally invested in someone who doesn't reciprocate that love. And that's how God loves. That's the way he continues to love. He has given us his heart. He's emotionally invested. He isn't cold and distant and emotionally detached. And for us to love like him is to be willing to give our hearts away to others. And maybe you say, hey, I mean, that sounds nice in theory, 
but I've done that before. My heart's been trampled on and I don't wanna keep doing that. I don't know how many times I can do that. I'm gonna get all spent up. I'm gonna keep getting hurt. I can't just keep getting hurt. How can I do that with, without you know, being afraid of getting my heart trampled on and ending up continually hurt? I'll tell you what, there's only one way. There's only one kind of security that gives you, makes you so secure that you're able to give your heart away over and over again, and that's this. You're so secure in the knowledge of God's love for you that the rejection or hurt that others cause you, it, it still hurts, it's still rejection, but it doesn't crush you because you're so secure and strong in the fact of God's love for you that nothing can take away, that nothing can change, that nothing can separate you from, that you're able to give your heart away again. See, that's the only way that you can realistically do that. No matter how many people, you know, no matter how people respond to it, or what they do to you because you can continually draw on this inexhaustible well of God's love for you that is proven and shown in the gospel. You can give your heart to others because he has given his heart to you. And the third thing we see, the last thing we see in this section, which was a factor in how the early Christians were able to turn the world upside down in their generation is this. They were able to keep their heads they were able to keep their heads. See, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials and difficulties, the early Christians were able to keep their heads. They didn't lose hope. They didn't lose heart. They didn't despair. They didn't give up. And the reason they were able to keep their heads is, is two things that we see here. Number one, they understood that God is the judge. And number two, they understood the dynamic of spiritual warfare. So again, they, first they understood that God is the judge. Look at verse 16. It says this. Paul's talking about their persecutors. And he says, look, they fill up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them at last. Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that God will indeed deal with these people who are hurting them and persecuting them. They're not getting away with it by any means. God sees it and he is gonna deal with it rightly and justly and they can take comfort in that. But along with the fact that God is judged, uh, God is judged, maybe the greater thing we see here is this. The early Christians understood uh, the dynamic of spiritual warfare and that's what allowed them to keep their heads in the midst of difficulty. Check this out. Paul says something incredible in verse 18. He says this. I actually tried to come to you guys. It's not like I didn't try. I tried to come to you. In fact, he says, I did it again and again, multiple times. But every time, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. How exactly did Satan hinder them from coming to Thessalonica? Well, we don't know for sure, but we know there are a lot of options, right? One option is that maybe there were crises in the church, people problems in the churches that Paul was ministering in that didn't allow him to get away and go to Thessalonica. Uh, it also seems in Acts chapter 17 that the authorities in Thessalonica, remember they, they rounded up the Christians, especially this one guy named Jason. And Paul had been crashing at Jason's house, right? And so they round up this guy named Jason and they threaten him and they warn him, if Paul ever sets foot in this city again, we're holding you responsible. So it's kind of like a probation, right? Like we'll let you go today, but if he ever sets foot in this city again, we're holding you responsible, whether financially or maybe they put him in jail. And so Paul likely didn't want to come back to Thessalonica himself. That's why he sends somebody else. He doesn't want to come back himself because he doesn't want to get his friend Jason in trouble. Well, another way that Satan might have been hindering Paul from coming to Thessalonica is through Paul's thorn in the flesh. You might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about this. 
Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It was probably a physical ailment, maybe something to do with his eyes. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that this thorn in the flesh, he says it was a messenger from Satan sent to buffet me, which literally means to beat me up with fists, right? To just punch me in the face, right? He says this messenger from Satan sent to buffet me. And here's what's really interesting though. Paul makes it clear that this messenger from Satan sent to buffet him, it was satanic in origin, but it was allowed by God and continued to be allowed by God for a purpose from God. See, here's the thing. Yes, there are spiritual forces at work in the world, spiritual evil forces. And here's the other thing. There is an enemy, and whatever God builds, the enemy seeks to destroy. And yet while the enemy opposes, ultimately God is in control, and he's working out his plan. And here's what that means. It means, you know, some people picture it like this, like there's a, a tug of war going on spiritually between like the forces of good and the forces of evil, between like God and Satan, and they're pretty evenly matched, right? Like it's 50-50, and maybe, maybe you need to jump on there, and you need to help God out a little bit, because if you don't, he's going to lose. I tell you what, guys, that is not at all the picture that the Bible gives us. It isn't a tug of war and 50-50 evenly matched, not at all. No, the picture the Bible gives us is this, that Satan is like a dog on a chain. He does a lot of barking, but ultimately he's limited by God in what he can do and where he can go because God places limitations on him. And then when God uses what God does then is whatever Satan does, God then comes and for the benefit of believers and even for his purposes in the world, he will even use those things that Satan meant for evil to accomplish good and to accomplish his purposes. Think about this situation here in Thessalonica. How did Paul get here in the first place? Remember, he never meant to be here. He intended to be somewhere else. He wanted to go to Asia, but he couldn't go to Asia. His plans didn't work out. He was prevented from going to Asia. And as a result, he ends up here in Thessalonica. Then later on, Paul's like, wow, I really like it in Thessalonica. But then he has to leave. And then he wants to get back to Thessalonica. And again, it's prevented. He's prevented from going there. And Satan's like, ha ha, I got your number, right? Like ruined your plans, messed everything up. And so what happens? Paul's like, well, if I can't go there, I guess I'll write them a letter. And now here we are today studying this letter as a church, 2,000 years later. Most scholars believe that this letter, 1 Thessalonians, was Paul's first apostolic letter that he ever wrote to any church. The first one, Right before it became like his career of writing books that end up in the Bible by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Eventually this becomes like a main part of his ministry where he's writing these letters inspired by the Holy Spirit to influence not just one group of people at a time, but to have some posterity and to reach other people in other places. In other words, remember this, what drove Paul into this career of apostolic letter writing that we benefit from today? Satan's hindrance. In the moment, Paul feels like frustrated, right? Like, God, why are you letting Satan hinder me? I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. How can this be good? Like, ah, I guess I'll just have to pick up a pen and write a letter, right? And now we get to benefit from it because we get to listen in on the conversation. And as a result of this hindrance of Satan, guess what happened? Not just one church got blessed, but literally billions of Christians have gotten blessed over the last 2,000 years and will continue to be blessed. And we stand here today and we say, God, thank you for letting Satan hinder Paul and not letting him go to Thessalonica like he wanted to. See, that's the dynamic of spiritual warfare. 
Yes, there is evil. There is an enemy. There is opposition. But it's not a tug of war like 50-50 evenly matched, right? God sits on the throne and he's working out his good and perfect plan, even to the point of using that which is meant for evil, for good and for his glory. And here's what that means for you and me practically on an everyday thing. We seriously need to reconsider. We seriously need to reconsider the way that we think about setbacks, don't we? We need to reconsider the way that we think about our setbacks because maybe God has allowed that thing to happen in order to accomplish something different, something bigger, something that you would have never come up with on your own if it was just up to you. But let me remind you of this. In order for that to happen and for the whole thing to come full circle, Paul also had to pick up the pen, right? He had to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit and pick up the pen and write. And what that means is that you also have a role to play in this as well. As you submit to the Lord by faith and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, as you follow Jesus, he will direct your path and lead you into victory. And one of the reasons why early Christians turned their world upside down is because they didn't lose their heads, they didn't lose their hearts, they didn't give up, they didn't despair in the face of difficulty and trials. You know, when you see someone going through someone dif something difficult and they don't lose hope and they react in faith rather than in fear, that stands out, that sticks out in your mind. You can't help but notice that upside down kind of response that they're having to their circumstances. And that was true of the early Christians. It was a factor in why they were able to turn the world upside down in their day and age. They understood that even though there's an enemy who opposes the people of God and the work of God, God is on the throne and he uses even that which was meant for evil for good for those who love him. You know, the reason that they were able to turn the world upside down, we've seen three things. They gave people the word of God, they gave away their hearts, and they kept their heads. And we would be amiss, though, if we thought that these are just some effective techniques, right? Three steps towards greater effectiveness in our life. No, there's something deeper here. There's something more, something much more important. The truth is that the early Christians lived this way. Why? Because these things were embodied for them in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the very word of God embodied. He is the word of God in flesh and blood with hands and feet, revealing to us who God is and what God desires and what he thinks and how he feels and how he loves. Jesus is the word of God who gave us his heart. He was tempted. He, when he suffered, he was persecuted. He didn't lose his head. He continued moving forward in faithful obedience to the Father for the joy that was set before him, the joy of redeeming you so that you could be with him for eternity. And it's ultimately, guys, it is him that people need. It is him that people need. That's what this influence thing is all about. Ultimately, is he alone who can influence people's hearts and turn this world upside down and, and therein right side up. And the good news for us is this. He has offered himself to us. He stands today and offers himself to you. He says, come to me, anyone who is thirsty, and drink freely of the water of life. And my question for you today is just this. Will you receive him today? Will you embrace the gospel today, whether for the first time or for the 5,000th time in your life? Will you embrace the gospel? Will you put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you? And will you respond to the word of God to you? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, this, this love that uh, is amazing, it's, it's divine. It blows our minds that you would love us in this way. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, thank you for this truth that not only do you save our souls, but Lord, you wanna use our lives. 
And Lord, may we be people who surrender our lives to you. And we ask that you would use them for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us that we wouldn't lose our heads in the midst of difficulty. Lord, help us to remember that you are on the throne and help us react in faith to those difficult things that we face, those roadblocks and setbacks. Help us to think differently about them. And Lord, help us to be people who give away our hearts just as you've given our heart to, your heart to us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.